Hey, before we get started, gotta go ahead and pay the bills around here. Go ahead and do me a quick favor. I've got two books out. I know, you're probably thinking if this is the first time you've heard of me or the first time you've actually heard me in a while. Uh, my God, I so can read. Yeah, I can read and write. And if you're my ninth grade English teacher, guess what? I can do it in freaking English too. Because unlike my name, all I know is English. Oh, blowing your mind, blowing your mind, blowing your mind and blow the minds of those around you with my two books. Stay away from the libertarians as well as my newest novel, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. Those are, how, blah, blah, blah. you know, my, I got I to gotta go for the shorter titles. Stay away from the Libertarians and has succeed in politics and other forms of devil worship. Available on my website, rwmartinez.com, as well as Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. Check them out. Has succeed in politics and other forms of devil worship and stay away from the Libertarians. Available. Well, you know how the internet works. You can go ahead and find it yourself. Pick them up today in print and digital and help support the show and, uh... Hey, I like making money. I'm not going to say no. Everything comes back here. Help me out. Buy my books. That's all. That's about it. probably getting tired of me talking about the last couple years of working shitty jobs and being unemployed chronically, but I don't think I'm quite done talking about it yet because there are a lot of lessons that I think I can go ahead and talk about. And on a more personal level, I also think that this is probably good for me just as a person because I think I'm at the point in my life where I've had enough time to not think about it. I've also had enough time to reflect on it. And I'm, I'm ready to come to terms with a lot of it. Not necessarily act as if it didn't happen, but really try and look at the good and the bad and take out the knowledge that can be learned in between. I will never forget. Um, I've had a lot of moments in my life where I've just completely fucked up something or I've lost something or something bad has happened. But um, there was a period of time when I wasn't working where it was just like I couldn't even get interviews at most places. I was sending resumes out all the freaking time and I just couldn't get interviews. I remember there were a couple federal jobs that my father tried to help me get and secure an internship with. I know what you're thinking. Oh, Remso is just depending on his dad. And, oh, that's what the entitled people do. But you know what? Everyone does that. And if you were in that position to either have your father have done that for you or for you to do that to your own child, I bet you would have done it. But this was one of those moments where I had definitely taken, you know, gr growing up I, as an adult, when I finally got to adulthood, I had definitely taken a different path than what my father had as a career soldier. So this was one of the only times where I ever actually begged him to help me get a job. And God bless him, he pulled every string, burnt every bridge, called in every favor to try and get me an interview for this one federal agency. And lo and behold, 
I didn't get the interview. I didn't even get an interview. I did not get the job. I didn't even get an interview. They wouldn't even talk to me. And I just remember my dad tried as hard as possible to try and do that. And it was one of those moments where I felt incredibly disappointed because I saw how incredibly disappointed my father was. And for me, I'm a person that really does... One of my one of my defects is I find identity in my work. If I'm not actively working, if I'm not making, you know, some scratch money here or there, I feel terrible. I think a lot of you can sympathize with that. So at this point, you know, I felt bad not only because I was broke and no one would talk to me or anything, but because I had also seen how much my father had tried to do this and it didn't work out. And I saw how much he was disappointed in himself because he couldn't help me. And I was disappointed for a myriad of reasons. So the one job I ended up taking eventually um, was, as, as you've probably heard in the last couple episodes, well, I'll describe again, it was a direct marketing company, which basically means you're a door-to-door salesman. If anyone ever says anything differently, that's essentially what it comes down to. And this is the job where I was selling makeup in the ghetto. And... Uh, <laughs> um, I just remember I was I wasn't lying to my parents. They knew what I was getting into, but I was trying to make it seem less less shitty because I wanted to be happy that I was working again and I wanted my friends to know I was working again because they were all, you know, moving up forward with their relationships and they were all starting careers and I felt like I had taken just some giant steps back. And um one of the first things I did with my first paycheck was I spent almost half of it on food, alcohol, and other shit to throw a big, uh, you know, barbecue party with a bunch of my friends um, to basically show them that I was doing good. And yeah, it was a fun night. I don't regret it, but it was one of those moments where I needed to see the validation of everything that I had been going through to make other people think that I was doing okay, when in fact I wasn't. And a few weeks later, I had quit that job, and the next month and a half was probably, well, it was probably like the fourth or fifth time I had been unemployed in the past uh, year and a half. It was probably the best time of unemployment. Because I was forced to do something which I hadn't done prior. I was forced to really stop being my own worst enemy in the sense that I was really the only one saying the horrible things that I thought other people were saying about me. You're unemployed. You're broke. You're a loser. You're a burden. You're all these terrible things I was telling myself. But the one thing that kept me going through that time until I finally did get approached with the offer for the job that I currently have now at the Washington Times, I had to go ahead and reframe what I was telling myself. Because the one thing I found was that if I'm going to seek my own identity through work, I might as well be working instead of moping. And the one thing that I was able to pull myself out with was to tell myself, Remso, you are a writer. And around that time, 
I went ahead and I did the first rounds of editing for my latest book, How Succeed Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. I was also writing for the Advocates for Self-Government and other places. I was writing like a madman. Whether I was making money or not, I was writing to try and keep myself up. And, uh, I mean, that book, for, for anyone that's heard me talk about it before, that book was a cathartic experience for me. It, you know, writing a novel, especially writing a historical novel, where I was blending fiction and nonfiction, it was definitely something I needed. But eventually, it got to the point where I, I just really realized that I needed to take care of myself. I was tired. I was tired of being tired. I was tired of constantly working so hard for things that weren't going to actually turn out with positive results. I wasn't benefiting from the things that I was doing. And um, about a week ago, I went to an alumni event for the Media Research Center. I was a Newsbusters intern for um, the summer of 2016, and uh, it, it wasn't a job. I, it wasn't a position I wanted only later as Newsbusters really began to blow up. Now I can look back at it and say, yeah, you know, I was part of that. But when I was put in the news analysis division, which is the shop that basically makes all the content for Newsbusters, I wasn't happy. I wanted to be in MRC culture, MRC business, because that's where all the real fiery, edgy, viral stuff that ended up on the Judge Report and ended up on um, you know, Fox and Rush Limbaugh and all that stuff. I wanted to be there. So when I was at MRC, I wasn't necessarily uh, the happiest person because I got kind of screwed over with that. But I also wasn't really the best person I could have been because I thought I was better than everybody else because I had been published at FreedomWorks, The Blaze, all these other places. So I had kind of a chip on my shoulder. And I ended up leaving a couple weeks early because of life and stuff. I'd been dealing with a pretty severe concussion all summer so I needed to get ready for school so I left a few weeks early and um, you know years later I'm at this alumni event and between then and now and that was the summer I was at MRC was also the summer I started the Remso Republic podcast which turned into all of this craziness um, you know when I went to the alumni event last week I wasn't I I, I think I knew what I was expecting, but I didn't end up getting what I was expecting. I was expecting nobody there to talk to me, nobody there to remember me, nobody there to like me. But what was weird was that everybody was super nice, and I had people who either I didn't know or I didn't remember coming up to me wanting to talk to me. And it was really strange because a couple of those people were my supervisors, and they had basically... They weren't, they weren't stalking me, but they were watching me. I was on their radar, and they were bringing up, oh, I heard about your books, and I see all the stuff you're doing at the Washington Times, and you're the first person to have your job there. And I've seen your TV show, and I saw your documentary, and I saw all this other stuff you've done. And, I mean, these people are, I'm not going to name names, but, I mean, these people are like big, big reporters, big editors, big people, bigger than me. And... It was really, it was really validating because I was not expecting that at all. And it was really one of those moments where they, they basically were telling me how much they respected me. And I'm not going to lie, I really liked it. But at the same time, I was also like, wait a second. You mean you people saw how hard I worked for years and nobody wanted to reach out. Nobody wanted to help me. 
but look at all the stuff I did anyway to end up where I am today. And it's not that I was upset. It's not that I was spiteful. I was just a little confused. And ultimately, as I left that night, it was nice to have their respect. But there was a part of me that realized, as nice as it is, I didn't need it to be happy with myself. The thing is, there were two biggest crutches that I kind of leaned on over the last couple years that I didn't even realize until last week. One of them is a mindset of scarcity. Secondly, is the need for outside validation. Um, you know, I get jealous of friends of mine who got retweeted by famous people, who got really awesome projects with big organizations. And for years, my mind was basically, oh, if the more opportunities, the more awesome things other people get, the less opportunity there is for me to do something cool. And that, when you say it out loud, is really fucking stupid. And that was my belief for years. And it wasn't until I realized, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. There are endless opportunities. There are many different ways to achieve something similar, greater, maybe just a little below par. There are many opportunities to do great things. And that was something that I tried to carry out, but I don't think I really realized it. I did it with the Nick Freitas documentary. This was one of those opportunities where I wanted to do a big series of documentaries, but I didn't have the resources for that. So I said, you know what, I'm going to do the one thing everyone says they want to do, but never do it. I'm going to go ahead and take one candidate and I'm going to do a documentary about him, guerrilla journalist style. And that was American Statesman, the Nick Freitas story. And I remember um, that that whole project was really difficult because I was the only one filming. I tried to do a Kickstarter campaign for $500 to mainly just cover gas and food and to pay uh, my brother Ryan to edit it because Ryan's a professional editor, and nobody gave a dollar. And then when I showed up to film, I had over um, you know 30 hours of footage. As I was filming, most people didn't even really believe I was serious about what I was doing. And then the freaking documentary comes out, and everyone's talking about how they had a quick, you know, they, they were in it for a quick minute. They were excited it was happening. It was reviewed positively by many people. Um, I went to Nick Freitas's, uh Senate announcement at... Um, at whatever the Virginia Republican retreat they do. And I just remember all of the people that came up to me and said, oh, man, I, I loved your documentary. I want to work with you. Oh, I want to pay you to do this. Oh, you did that. You're a great director. And I just remember thinking, like, you know, none of those people supported me when I did need them, and I doubt they're actually going to fall through with any of the things that they're saying they're going to do for me now. And I was actually right about that. None of them ever did. But I, I had that moment then. Whereas it was like, I've, I've done something that no one actually believed would have happened. I succeeded without their help, and I am capable of succeeding without their help. But part of me still didn't believe that. Part of me still needed the constant validation. And that, you know, that brings us to the second point. When I wasn't dealing with a mindset of scarcity, I needed that constant validation. And when I wasn't getting it, I was miserable. When I wasn't getting the downloads I wanted, I was miserable. When I wasn't getting the reviews I wanted, I was miserable. I was constantly miserable. But now you take that, for example. Let's talk about the podcast. 
When I started out, I was upset because I wasn't getting thousands and thousands of downloads because I thought I was the shit. Uh, now I'm kind of the shit, but nah, you know what I'm saying. But like I had to reframe my mindset on that. Oh, you've got like a dozen or so people. Okay, you filled up a small classroom. Oh, now you're getting like 50, 100 people. Oh, now you're filling up, you know, uh, you know, a church room. Oh, now you're getting hundreds of people. You're filling up an auditorium. Damn, you have thousands of people listening. You're filling up a stadium. Even when I go through those periods where it's like one day is a stadium, the next day is a small classroom, the next day it might just be a couple of friends listening. Like I have to think about that because that brings me back to the abundance mindset that I try to have. There are many opportunities. There are many ways to get things done. I'm happy when, you know, even some people would be like, oh, you're happy with that? I'm like, yeah, I'm happy with that because I'm getting the results I'm getting. There are other opportunities. I don't need to hear I'm doing well to know I'm doing well because I'm happy with what I'm doing and the results aren't terrible. I feel foolish that it's taken me many years to be appreciative of the opportunities I have now because I always felt like I needed somebody to tell me I was doing well. I needed someone to tell me I was finally feeling like an adult. I needed someone to tell me that I was doing the right thing. Ultimately, the biggest thing that I wish that I had spent less time doing was being less angry about things. Because the beautiful thing about having a mindset of abundance is you begin to appreciate everything that you have done through your own efforts. By not constantly seeking the validation of others, as easy as that sounds, what you do is you free yourself from a lot of false expectations. You free yourself from that negative voice in your head constantly telling you, you're this, you're that. It's not because you really don't feel you need the validation of others, but it really comes down to it's nice to have it, but you're fine without it. And I want to say that again. It's nice to have it, but you're fine without it. I've, um, I'll, I'll be honest about this. You know, I have a lot of watches. I'm a watch collector. If you see my Instagram, which by the way, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HeyRem. So, you know, I've got a lot of watches. There's one fake watch I have. I have, I have a fake watch. And it's the watch that I always wanted. It's thousands of thousands of dollars. I'm not going to tell you which one. But, um, okay, it's it's the Tag Heuer uh, Monaco, the square one. It's a fake one I got for a few hundred bucks online. Honestly, the second hand is kind of broken. But the thing is, like, when I started working at the Times again, I, I went on kind of a spending spree. And I was like, you know, I want this watch. But, you know, here's a weird thing about wearing a luxury watch, especially when, the, when the, my bosses in my office know how much I make. One, they know... There's no way he can afford that. But for other watch people, and some one guy caught me on that, he's like, why do you have to have that watch on? What are you trying to front with us, homie? And the thing is, I don't wear it often because I felt like a fraud wearing it. I wear it every once in a while, and honestly, you know, we can get into the whole semantics about the Swiss watch industry and everything else, but, you know, like, it's a nice watch. It still works. But at the end of the day, it might say Tag Heuer Monaco. It's not Tag Heuer Monaco. I just know it because I know it's not. And um, I've got this one watch that Juliana, my girlfriend, got for my birthday a few years ago. And she bought it off some like Etsy store. It's an old Seiko 5. It's an octagon-shaped Seiko. It's one of the fewest of that model they have. It's one of the rarest in the world. She got it for a few 
dollars and i had to sp- it, when it got to me it was like in shit shape like it was like dead so i had to spend a few hundred more dollars on it to fix it and now it's the most beautiful watch i have and i had it assessed and that like $30 watch she bought, which then I had to flip for about uh, $300 to get nice. And I still have it, by the way. When I mean flip, I mean just fix it up. When I found out how much that would cost now, even in the state of not having the original glass and stuff, it's a $1,500 watch. Like it's an expensive watch, but I would have never known it. I put the time to fix it, to pay for the repairs and everything because I, I liked the watch. I'm genuinely happy with the watch. And it's a bit smaller for a guy of my wrist size. But, like, it's a classy watch. And when I pair it with a suit, it's perfect. And when my mom saw it after the repair, she was like, wow, it's completely different. Wow, look at it. I didn't think it would be beautiful. But what you've done with it, it looks stunning. And it, it's funny because I have it in my watch winder and I put it next to the Monaco. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll ask my mom, like, hey, what watch do you think I should wear tonight to this function with a suit or something? And she'll say, oh, put on the Steve McQueen watch. For those of you that are watch people and you know history about it, you know that Steve McQueen made the Tag Heuer Monaco. Back then, the Heuer Monaco tag came a little bit later, but he made the Monaco famous. So that watch really is known as a Steve McQueen watch. So I'd be like, oh, you're talking about the Monaco? And she says, no, 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 the, the smaller Seiko one. I'm like, you call that one the Steve McQueen watch? And she's like, yeah. That's the Steve McQueen watch because that's 60s cool. That's old school Hollywood cool. That is really the watch that if Steve McQueen had a choice, he would wear that. And I go and I put the watch on. And I remember how the shape it came in, how everyone's just like, it's trash. And then I spend the money to fix it, and now it looks beautiful. And people on the street have offered to pay me cash for that watch. That is the Steve McQueen watch. And it's, it's funny when you look at things like that because you don't always know the potential until you put the work in and sometimes it takes time to remind you of that in those moments. And through all of this, I'm grateful, especially for those of you that have known me, whether you're friends or just loyal listeners. There were hundreds of episodes in. You've been with me through the hard times and the great times and the low periods and the high periods. And I want to say thank you. I ultimately do. I honestly do. I humbly do. Because of all the people and all the things you could be doing, you could be listening to, you're listening to this. And from the bottom of my heart, I do this for you. I do it for myself a bit, obviously. But thank you for being a supporter, a believer, Thank you for being there. And that's all. I will ask one thing. Go go follow me on Instagram. If you're not already, like, come on. Let's have fun there. Talk about this. I'll post this on Twitter. Let's go ahead and have a conversation over on there on Instagram. As always, I'm Remso W. Martinez. Like we do it. Like we do it. Like we do it. Like we do it. We got the